Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Andy Blow. So I became familiar with Andy years ago, actually, as I was exploring some hydration type things that were relative to my racing and training for that matter. So you have a situation, especially an ultra marathon where staying hydrated or at least reasonably hydrated becomes a big part of the process or a variable that if you can get right, can very much influence performance. So actually last summer, and I've talked about this before in the podcast, I had a friend Remo reach out to me and offer to do a sweat test. And what that basically is, is there are these like machines and you get strapped up to it. It's super non-invasive. It just draws a little bit of sweat off of you and then analyzes it and it will spit out a number. And that number will reflect the amount of electrolytes that you lose for every liter of sweat. And with that information, you can start running the numbers. If you know then how many liters of sweat you lose in X climate, you can start to calculate what your needs are going to be in a training session or in a race set session and also determine like essentially how long it might take before you start seeing some of the negative ramifications of dehydration. So the reason I wanted to have Andy on is Andy is actually the guy who made that machine. He has been just someone who has been in the whole hydration electrolyte world for quite some time now. And that is partly as we'll get into in the podcast, uh, an issue that he was dealing with when he was competing himself. So just a little bit of background about Andy. Andy Blow is a sports scientist with a degree in sports and exercise science from the University of Bath. He is an expert in sweat, dehydration, and cramping. Andy previously worked as the team sports scientist for the Benetton and Renault Formula One teams and remains an advisor to the Porsche Human Performance Center. He's an elite level triathlete in his younger days. Andy finished in the top 10 of Ironman and Ironman 70.3 races, as well as winning the Xterra World title. Andy's a leading figure in the world of sports hydration, has worked alongside Dr. Roz Jutley, as well as other top sports scientists to co-author a number of studies and books. So, man, we went over a lot of different stuff between just like why you can't rely on someone else's anecdote when it comes to how much electrolytes you should use in your training and racing. So basically looking at that wide spectrum of electrolyte loss from one person to the next where are some starting points or some population averages for you to work with? If you want to get a more precise measure like I did and figure out exactly what you're losing, how to go about that. Also signs and symptoms that maybe would suggest whether you're kind of right in the middle or far on one side or the other of the, what we'll call bell curve of sweat electrolyte loss. And just a lot of other situations that we went through. This is a really fun podcast to record. And it was great to have Andy drop all sorts of knowledge around dehydration, electrolyte replacement, and hydration. So before we get rolling with Andy, just a couple quick announcements. I actually have a very exciting intro here today because it's the first intro where I'm going to announce a raffle winner. I've been doing raffles, or I shouldn't say I've been doing them. I've been collecting data for a raffle where if you as a listener go and share the podcast episode or episodes that you listen to and enjoy and tag me on any of the social media platforms that you use, 
you'll get automatically entered into this raffle and that raffle will win you a free consultation with me. So we'll be able to hop on the hop on a zoom or a phone call for 30 minutes and chat about whatever it is you want to talk about. And all you got to do is post and share the episode, maybe say why you enjoyed it or what it was about tag me so that I know you did it. And then I will put you down on the list and every month I'm going to draw one. So this is the first episode where I'm going to announce a winner from the previous month's uh, sharings of episodes and the winner goes to Gary Siba. So Gary shared on uh, Instagram story, I believe. So Gary, I'll be reaching out to you soon with some details to sign up for your consultation. Congratulations. And like I said, folks, if you want to get entered in next month's raffle, feel free to do that as well. Just share from your podcast listening device or YouTube or wherever you happen to listen to the show, watch the show and tag me. If you tag me, then I'll know that you did and I can put you on that list. So if you're sharing it on Twitter at ZBitter, if you're sharing it on Instagram at Zach Bitter, uh, if it's somewhere else, then find a way to let me know. <laughs> you can actually send me an email with a screenshot of something if you share it on a place where you're not familiar where where to tag me. Or if you just want to confirm that I see it, you can always send an email with a screenshot of it to hplpodcast at gmail.com. And from there, I will also be able to add you to the list. Also, if you happen to be in Austin, whether you live here or you're visiting on a Sunday morning and want to meet up, I do host a group run at Mets Park. We actually have two start times, 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. It's been getting kind of hot this summer, so people are starting to kind of shift from what our main starting time is, which is 9 a.m. to the 8 a.m. Last week, we actually did have still a larger numbers than 9 a.m., but that 8 a.m. one is starting to pick up a little bit as people are trying to get their run in a little bit earlier. So details for that for any given week can be found on the Instagram page, which is just at Outliers ATX. And I'm there most weekends. This weekend, I'm actually going to be gone because I'm going to be in San Diego. But going forward this summer, most likely I'll be there to hang out, go for a run, chat before or after. So feel free to stop by. Also, my website, ZachBitter.com, has all sorts of options for coaching, whether it's pre-made plans or one-on-one -on -one stuff. You can head there, reach out to me, and set that up. That's also where you can sign up for consultations if you want to chat one-on-one. -on -one. Like I mentioned, if you want to help the podcast go grow, you can share and subscribe, tag, uh, tag your friends when you're posting about the episodes and things like that, and then enter that raffle. Also, if you want to support the show, if you go to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, that is the main landing page where I have the catalog of all the previous episodes with all the details and everything on there. So if you want to head there and check that out, there's also a spot there where you can link over to the show Patreon page where I put up ad-free, intro-free podcast episodes. So if you're like, this is all great, Zach, but I just want to get right to Andy in the interview, that's the spot to go for it. If you support me on the Patreon page, you get that access. There's also spots there to support the show through monetary means if you want that do not require you to join the Patreon page if that is more your style. All right, finally, before we get rolling, just a couple few announcements from our show sponsors. One of this year's main podcast episode sponsors is Element. Element makes an electrolyte supplement that I really like to use. They have a variety of different flavors. In fact, now that it's summertime, they've been showcasing their seasonal edition, which is grapefruit. Uh, grapefruit goes along with a variety of other options they have, including citrus, watermelon, orange, raspberry, chocolate, mango chili, raw, unflavored, and it comes packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. 
those numbers are important to me and you'll understand why after this interview today. But for me, I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of sweat. So I know that about a half a pack of LMNT in a liter of water is going to be the concentration that I would lose. So a lot of times I'm putting maybe a half a packet of LMNT chocolate in my coffee in the morning before I head out for a run. If I'm out there for a longer session or really warm session, I'll probably put uh, some more in uh, my bottle, usually one of the fruitier flavors. I usually learn lean towards watermelon, but since grapefruit is seasonal right now and it won't be around here year long, I usually like to try that one out a bit too. So if you want to try it out and actually get a free sample pack, you can do that by heading to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. If you use that URL with the forward slash HPO at the end, it will automatically prompt you to access that free sample pack. And that free sample pack will get you one of each of those flavors I listed with your first purchase. Then you can determine if it's right for you and which flavor is your favorite. Also this year, I did add a new product to my training and racing routine. And this was one where I've been keeping my eye on for a few years, actually all the way back to when I had Brianna Stubbs on the episode or on the podcast for episode 202. And it was talking about the exogenous ketone research and where that was heading. It was new then, and it's still pretty new now as far as science and research goes, but there has been a ton of research that's come out now over those last couple of years to the point where I decided it was time to give it a try and see what it does for me. So I've been using Delta G's formulation. The reason I'm using Delta G's is because they are the original ketone ester that was developed at Oxford University through the work of Professor Kieran Clark who has been a critical part of the exogenous ketone research and formulation. They received DARPA grants in effort to design a formula for special forces. Since then, Delta G has produced 50 plus published studies and are part of a 20 plus ongoing studies. And this includes two very recent studies that really got me excited about this and they explored exogenous ketone relationships with increasing natural levels of EPO, as well as increasing circulating dopamine concentration, improving mental alertness, and improving post-exercise inflammation in endurance athletes. So right now, my protocol is before big workouts or key workouts, I will take a bottle of Delta G Performance. And on race days, I will take a bottle of Delta G Performance 20 minutes before the race. And then every three hours after that, I'll take another serving of that if it's a longer race that extends past three hours. So if you want to check out Delta G's research and product line, you can go to deltagketones.com. If you go to deltagketones.com, you can also sign up for a free consultation with Brian, who will dive into the research with you, the usage, help you dial in a plan that would work best for your circumstance. If it does, maybe it won't. And then they'll guide you as to whether this is something that you want to consider or not. So that's deltagketones.com. You can also give them a follow on Instagram at deltag.ketones if interested for some updated research and commentary around exogenous ketones. All that stuff can be found on the show sponsor webpage too, which is zachbitter.com forward slash HPL sponsors, as well as in the show notes. Andy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for the invite, Zach. Good to be here. Yeah, well, we're sitting here in early July and... Last week, Austin set a record for heat. <laughs> it was like, I think, 117 degrees or something with the dew point, which is uh, getting pretty up there. And, you know, there's obviously a difference between what it feels like being in dry heat versus humid heat. And here in Austin, we get the full dose of humidity this time of year. So I thought I can't be the only one dealing with the heat of the summer and thinking about how my hydration and electrolytes uh, setup may differ in this time of year or what I need to be paying attention to. So I thought it was pretty a timely one to have you come on the show and kind of share a little bit about 
your background and knowledge about all that stuff. Yeah, no problem at all. Like coming from the UK, 117 sounds like a setting on my oven, not <laughs> not something you should be living in. Yeah, to be fair, that's Fahrenheit, not Celsius. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, awesome. I think like one of the more interesting things about you, Andy, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on to talk about this topic is uh, I've got a, a friend and fellow ultra runner, Remo, who lives here in, in Austin. And, and last summer was actually, I mean, I made it seem like it's terrible here this, this summer, but really this, this year hasn't been that bad. Last summer, though, was pretty bad across the board. It felt like we went from winter right into summer and had no spring. And uh, Remo was making his rounds around uh, Austin with this little little contraption that uh, will tell you like approximately how much electrolyte you're going to lose for every like fluid liter of sweat loss. And uh, he had uh, reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do a test run. I was like, well, this would be pretty cool to know because to date I'd been able to more or less determine roughly like how much fluid loss I would take on in a given climate, but. I really didn't have any insight as to what that fluid actually contained. So uh, I do want to kind of start a little bit with your background, because I think that's just an interesting story as to like why you got interested in this stuff in the first place. And I think that story kind of tells probably why someone like you would get interested in something like that. So if you don't mind sharing with our listeners just a little bit about kind of your background in athletics and why you first got interested in hydration and electrolytes. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, my athletic career started in my sort of um, early teens, really. I got into endurance sports when I faded out of playing soccer in the UK. I was doing a bit of cross-country running and swimming, and my dad took me along to a triathlon, and I got really inspired by that and, and dove in pretty deep into triathlon for a number of years. And obviously, triathlon being the sport that it is, the in a lot of people's eyes uh, certainly was don't know if it still is but the, the Hawaii Ironman was kind of the pinnacle of the sport and that's what caught my eye as a youngster I was watching at the time Dave Scott and Scott Tinley and Mark Allen and the kind of famous great names in, in triathlon I wanted to emulate that and so always had this idea of going and doing the, the Hawaii Ironman and as I as I got a bit better at racing, I had some success in the UK racing in the kind of normal, cool to mild conditions we get here and then started to go abroad to race in hot conditions. And often my races would fall apart and I would end up massively underperforming. I end up in the medical tent a number of times, all with kind of problems that seemed in some way related to hydration now you mentioned earlier that you know measuring your sweat rate is quite easy and as an athlete I was very aware that I have a high sweat rate I'm not a, I'm not a really big guy when I was racing I was probably just under 150 pounds and I would sweat buckets absolutely pours off me still does to this day it's just I think just a genetic factor you know I just sweat a lot and so my my naive uh, compensation for that when I was racing in the heat was just to drink a lot and mainly a lot of water some dilute sports drinks as well but I was just focusing on drinking a lot because I figured if I'm losing a lot of fluid I need to replace a lot it turned out that what I was actually doing was diluting the electrolyte levels in my body quite a bit that was what was causing me the problems it was giving me cramps it was making me quite ill but it wasn't until a friend of mine who was a medic looked at me and he saw after a race that I was covered in salt and he said, I think what you're describing and what I'm seeing is very consistent with a very heavy amount of electrolyte loss. And so we should have a look at that. 
And so I asked him how we would do that. And he said, well, we can go to the hospital and you can have something called a sweat test. They actually use it to diagnose cystic fibrosis. But for you, it'd be really interesting to see how much salt you lose. And he said, he just sort of said to me, I bet, I bet you, you're going to be losing quite a lot. You're going to be on the high end of the spectrum. So had this sweat test done, figured out that I lose, he was dead right. I lose loads of, of, of sodium in my sweat. So I lose to put it in context, about 1,800 milligrams of sodium in every liter that I sweat, and I sweat a lot. The average is less than 1,000 milligrams a liter if you take a sample from the population. And so putting two and two together, he said to me, look, I think you've been drinking too much fluid, which has been diluting your electrolyte levels. I think you've not been taking enough salt or not enough sodium. And we started to work out, you know, we started to sort of tip the balance the other way. I started taking more salt in races. More, um, at the time, it was just like sodium capsules and and drinking a little bit less fluid. And it was like nothing I've ever experienced before in terms of it was it was night and day different. I don't know that you're a super experienced and accomplished runner and you'll have had, there'll have been things that have unlocked performance in your career, I'm sure, but you, you, you'll probably hopefully also agree. There's very few things where you do them and instantly you just are better. And this for me was like, I could race a, li- a lot more like I could in, in cool climates. I could race more to my potential in the heat when I got this aspect of my, you know, electrolyte and fluid intake. Correct. So for, for me as an athlete, it was like a massive game changer. And then Towards the end of my career, I did study sport and exercise science. So I was I was working with athletes, running a sports science lab. I was I was doing a bit of coaching, and I decided to offer sweat testing and bought a sweat testing machine in order to start testing athletes because I was curious to see whether I was a real outlier of one, or more predictably, whether there was a bit of a range in the population and whether this information could help athletes, especially those who are doing long and hot races. And so that was about. 14 15 years ago now and you know in a in a sort of random and rambling way that's become a business now precision fuel and hydration and and just uh, with great partners around the world like remo we offer sweat testing and individualized electrolyte assessments for people to help them understand this part of their puzzle yeah it really is interesting and like you mentioned the fluid electrolyte thing can be a pretty immediate thing that you notice i think my most obvious experience with that was in in 2018, I did the Western States 100. And I didn't really notice that I felt like I was behind in any like clear way. I I struggled a bit at the end of that race. But it wasn't like clear to me as to what the reason was at the time until I arrived at the finish line. I I, I was the I guess, fortunate or unfortunate, depending on you look at finished 11th man, man. So I was the first one out from the reentry spot that year. So I had more reporters who wanted to talk to me probably specifically about that than what you would normally see the 11th place finisher probably get. So they come over to me and ask if I'll do an interview. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's chat. And then as soon as I said that about three or four seconds later, I started feeling like super lightheaded to the point where I told them, like, Hey guys, I think I'm going to pass out. So they like ran over and grabbed this like plastic chair, put me in. It took me over to the med tent. They laid me down there and they gave me some broth and I drank that broth. And it was like less than a minute. It was like my, I got like super alert. Like it was a complete reversal. So I started thinking at that point, it was like, I, it was a little bit of a warmer year that year. Um, nothing insane, but as far as Western States go, you're going to on a normal year, you're going to see some heat. And I was definitely going through a lot of water that day. And in hindsight, I was questioning whether maybe I didn't quite have a perfect match there between sodium or electrolytes and the fluid intake. And possibly since I was moving 
for the most part that I didn't really notice it distinctly until I stopped and all that stuff kind of slowed down a little bit. And maybe my, my blood volume or electrolyte concentration was maybe a little bit off, but I'm speculating a lot there, but anyway, it was, it was an interesting experience and it did eventually lead me to, uh, kind of going the route you did, which is getting a little more specific testing. And uh, when I got that done, I found out that I lose, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum of you, actually, I was like 614 milligrams uh, yeah. lost. So what that showed me is what you like to talk about, I think is it's not a one size fits all approach, there is going to be some quite large ranges between one person to, to even between us, but the ranges even stretch out further. Can you just talk to us a little bit about where those ranges are? You mentioned kind of where the norms are and things like that. But if we were to maybe like parcel it out into like fifths, is there like some ranges where people tend to find themselves in throughout that spectrum? Yeah, the range is like, uh, if if people understand who are listening, understand anything about statistics and and that it's it's really follows a bell-shaped curve, which which means that it's a little bit like say height in the population, in that you've got some people who are really, really short, and you've got some people that are really, really tall. And then you've they're they're small in number. And as you get closer to the middle range of height, you get more and more people. So you kind of get this this curve shape that goes from a very it's like a it's like a it's like a hill. It just goes up and down the other side. You're sitting two thirds of the way to the, as you look at it to the left of that curve on the low end, I'm sitting almost, you know, like three quarters or more to the right hand side. So we both are either side of that average. That average is around about 900 milligrams, 900 to a thousand milligrams per liter, depending the literature that you read and what you take. We have a database of around 15,000 sweat tests and, and the, the average at the moment is about 950 milligrams per liter, which tends to agree with the, the kind of, big data sets you see in, in other forms of research, but we have seen people down at two or 300 milligrams per liter. And we've seen people well over 2000 and, you know, they, they're less numerous, but that, that difference I would say is approximately tenfold across the population. And, and actually it's not unusual to see someone like yourself, uh, an athlete who's very accomplished at long distances and race in racing races well in the heat to be, to sit on the lower side. And um, whether there's that, how much of that is cause and how much is that of that is effect is is always unclear for me. If I hadn't have known that information, I don't think I've ever raced well in the heat unless I'd have figured it out by like real random trial and error. Whereas I think if you naturally have a lower sweat sodium loss, it can be a small competitive advantage in long and hot races because even if your electrolyte replacement is a bit more ad hoc and less strategic, you may well do a decent job of meeting your your individual needs um, that's not to say though that it, it isn't impactful if you've got a high sweat rate because this this it's a bit confusing for people because there are two factors at play here and they're a little bit independent so sweat rate is one factor and anyone with a super high sweat rate sweating for hours and hours can usually benefit from some level of electrolyte replacement but if you also happen to be someone with a super high sweat rate and a really high sweat concentration, obviously, then you're losing both a massive amount of fluid and a massive amount of salt. And that's where that one size fits all philosophy comes in, because you, as you've identified, your needs in, in a long race are going, to be, are going to be quite a bit different to mine, because I'm going to have to double down on taking on a lot of salt and sodium early on to get in front of my losses, whereas you could probably take a much more um, moderate approach and be OK. 
Yeah, that's a that's a fun topic I want to dive into. And I also want to look at it through those two angles that you mentioned, which is the actual amount of fluid a person's losing, and then matching that up with their electrolyte loss. Because the other interesting thing is, uh, Remo came back around and tested my wife after that. And I just assumed she was going to be like, lower than me for some reason. Well, I, I mean, I, I, my thought was actually that like, when we go out for a run together in the same in the same climate, it seems like I'm drinking like, double to triple the amount that she is. So I was like, she's just super efficient for one reason or the other doesn't have as much of a slot fluid loss as I do. So hers came back actually right around at the norm. I think she was maybe a pinch under a thousand milligrams. And my guess though, is if we went and we also tested the amount of fluid loss over the course of run and then matched up how much electrolytes I would actually take in compared to her, I'd probably still end up consuming more electrolyte than she would just because of sheer amount of volume of fluids that I would take in relative to her. So what is it, well, what, do you see kind of a correlation with fluid loss and sodium concentrations, or is that just totally all over the place? No, that's all over the map. So you could have a low sweat rate and a high sodium concentration, or you could have a, a low sweat a low sweat rate and a low sodium concentration. You could have a high rate and a high concentration, or you could have a high rate and a low concentration. So you can, if you imagine it like a quadrant like that, with with um, you know high to low on both axes, one for sodium, one for um, one for uh, sweat volume it's a really useful way to think about it. It's kind of which quadrant do you think you sit in? And for me, I'm like high and high. It sounds like to me, you might be high on sweat volume or moderately high at least, and but but low on sodium loss. And if, you, if you're being super crude about it, if you know which quadrant someone sits in, it at least gives you a ballpark to start to say, okay, well, based on, you know, duration of race, temperature, those kind of things, you can get into the ballpark of roughly how much fluid, how much sodium might be a good, starting point for someone to experiment with because ultimately that a lot of the time that's the kind of practical stuff that athletes want to hear because they want to know okay well what it's all very well hearing like the theories behind this information but what do i do with it and i think sorting yourself out into whether you're in you know the high high quadrant the low low or somewhere in between is a really useful thought experiment for athletes to go through Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly is. And I think you're right. I think once you get into the right ballpark, you can, even if you don't get a sweat test done like I did or that you have, like you can at least start playing around with that and figure out through maybe some other symptoms if you need to kind of adjust. But I did want to ask you about the, the protocol that you use in terms of determining fluid loss throughout different environments and maybe let the listeners know a little bit about like where they can start with that in terms of determining how much fluid are they going to go through and say like their two hour run or their maybe their three hour long run when they're out there training throughout the course of the year. Yeah, I think I think there's there's two. Well, so the way that you measure fluid loss or estimate fluid loss really is you weigh yourself before and after an activity and you try try to do that with either no clothes on or minimal clothing on and when you've towed yourself down so you've got you're not carrying loads of sweat on the body and really for every i'm talking i'll start in uh, metric because that's what i know best but for every kilogram which is 2.2 pounds of, of body weight you lose that's about one liter which is around about 33 34 ounces of fluid um that's a good it's not exact and if you do really long runs you burn through some substrate as well so that kind of muddies the water but for most stuff like one two three hours the majority of the weight you lose is going to be fluid loss 
And so you can weigh yourself before and after an activity, as long as you then correct for whatever you, whatever you consume and whether you pee or not during that activity, then you can work out a net fluid deficit and that will be your sweat rate on an hourly basis. So we've got a spreadsheet on our website, which people can download for free if they want to do this. And they just punch in the duration of the activity, their starting weight, the end weight, the weight or volume of whatever they drank, and it will work out the numbers for you. So that's an easy way to, to get started. I think there's two different types of sweat testing that are of value. You can, you can do a, a, what I would call like a standardized sweat test, which I would normally get people to try and do for an hour. So I'd usually say to people, if you want to do a standard sweat test, pick a pace for running that's similar to your race intensity and an environmental condition that's similar to the environment you're going to be racing in. Run for 10 minutes just to warm up and get yourself to the point where you're about to start sweating and then weigh yourself. Then do an hour of running at steady state in that environment try not to drink anything and then weigh yourself afterwards and that's the most accurate way to kind of get a ballpark on your if you want to call it your standard sweat rate and if you do that four or five times as long as the numbers that you're getting back each time kind of agree with each other there's no there's no massive deviation which can can happen if your scales aren't really good or if you've like screwed up the measurements somehow if you've got four or five in agreement you can be pretty sure of what your standard sweat rate is and that can be a useful exercise because it helps to categorize you. Because I would say to most people, if you're in moderate environmental conditions and you're not a super massive human or a really tiny human, then if your sweat rate is between, you know, somewhere just under or just over one liter an hour, that's really normal. You know, that's kind of in the middle. If it's, if it's much lower than that, that puts you in the low category. And if it's much higher than that, you could be high or very high. So that helps to calibrate your genetic sweat rate the other exercise that i encourage people to do sometimes is not worry about trying to replicate anything but on some of your longer harder training runs go out weigh yourself before and after and drink and eat as you normally would take that into account and see how much percentage of body weight you lose because that can be a really telling sign of whether you're someone who has quote unquote good drinking habits and is able to minimize the amount of body weight loss you have because you've got good thirst instincts or good routines or whether you're someone who drops a lot of weight in two or three hours and therefore might be at risk of getting pretty dehydrated in in longer runs and races um, because your your proactivity around drinking or the amount that you're currently taking in is not really meeting your longer term needs so this, th those two types of tests can both be done. And I think both have a value with people and, and sort of start to paint the picture for you of not only how much fluid you need, but how much you habitually taking. And is that close to those needs? If you do have a scenario where you are optimally trying to perform by taking in fluids during a workout or a race versus like that scenario you described with the one hour test, is there any sort of corrective mechanism that the body will do as it dips into cl or closer to dehydration, eventually into dehydration in terms of amount of fluid loss, it's going to allow it to do to the point where it can skew your data? Yeah, if you if you'd struggle to get there in an hour, but if you do really long sessions and get dehydrated, you'll tend to slow down. 
because naturally dehydration puts pressure on the body and causes you to to slow down now if you're mentally very tough you might be able to push through that to a degree and keep the pace up but you're generally going to slow down that's going to reduce your metabolic rate that reduces your heat production and that reduces your sweat rate so your sweat rate is going to tail off the other thing is as well if you just become significantly dehydrated your body will down regulate your sweat rate because it's trying to balance that thing of thermoregulation versus outright fluid loss so there is some evidence that you know some fairly strong evidence that dehydrated people will sweat less than well hydrated people because although the body is worried about overheating it's also worried about just running out of fluid so it's going to conserve as much as it can so when you do these tests it's good to go into them you know like you would any session you know pretty well fueled well hydrated kind of normal for you so that you're testing a normal case scenario you're not deliberately going in under hydrated or under fuel nor have you like massively overdrunk or preloaded or whatever beforehand because that can all skew that data interesting yeah it sounds like in a vacuum the bot the body's going to behave pretty similar as expected but then when you start introducing those variables of you're getting not giving it what it needs you have a, it does a very good job of shutting you down so to speak in order to make that process less aggressive uh and that's where i think people oftentimes start exploring these type of situations when they find themselves in the event or a workout where you're getting a little dizzy maybe they even pass out or get close to that and then start thinking well what did i do wrong that my body felt like shutting me down was better off than continuing on with the task at hand yeah, often that's that in this scenario is the tug of war that goes on between thermoregulation because your core body temperature needs to be kept below about 40, 41 Celsius. And if it starts to go up, you sweat more. But the re main reason it often is going up is this is the speed at which you're moving, the power that you're producing by the muscles produce a lot of heat as a byproduct. So the body does does slow you down when you get too hot or you lose too much fluid because it recognizes that this you can't just keep you're not a heat sink you can't just keep absorbing more heat so it, it sort of has to like put the brakes on somehow what you've described as well that that thing that you described at the finish of the western states when you stopped and went super dizzy is actually really really common and that's usually because as you've already identified your your blood volume is dropped so because you're you're getting dehydrated you've then you but you've still been your you know, your heart rate's been high because you're running and that's keeping the blood pressure up and your blood vessels in your legs are probably super dilated because they're pumping blood to the working muscles. Then you come to a sudden stop. It takes a little bit of time for those blood vessels to constrict and to get the central volume back up and, the, and the, keep the blood pressure up to push blood up to your brain. So it's very, very usual to sort of feel a bit of a transient dizzy episode. And, and as you, as, as they identify, if they sit you down or lie you down, get your feet up, get some salty fluid in you, the correction can be really rapid, but it's kind of, it's, it, it happens when you stop because of that drop in blood pressure and, and you're not getting enough blood to your brain. I used to suffer that when I look back in my own training career, I used to suffer that lightheadedness and, and um, blood pressure drop all the time in the summer. If I was training really hard, I'd maybe lie on the sofa after a hard training session for a while, get up, and I I, I would I quite frequently I'd almost pass out, and I did pass out a few times. Um, and it wasn't until later, much later on, I realised that was probably because I was getting so behind with my fluid and salts that that lying down and going to vertical without enough blood volume was just causing me to keel over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think there are a few like 
field tests, so to speak, that you can maybe gauge to find out if you're doing a good job or not, or stress test your protocol, where uh, I believe this may have been on your website that they suggested, like just doing a test like that after you finish a workout, like sit down and stand up and just gauge, do you feel like you're able to just transition from that seated position to a standing position pretty seamlessly the way you would in a normal state? Or do you maybe feel a little dizzy, maybe see some stars or things like that, that would be a signal that that blood volume is just not quite to the point where it's doing its job at the speed at which it would in optimal conditions. Yeah, I think if you if you get lightheadedness married with a decent drop in body weight, that's that's and, and often accompanied by thirst or a craving for salt, that's a huge sort of set of red flags that come together and go, yeah, you just didn't drink enough fluid and take on enough electrolytes. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to another question, because I think there's a level of intuition sometimes that you can rely on with sort of thing. And with ultra running, it's oftentimes one of the recommendations is like, especially later stages of the race, like if you get into an aid station and something just looks good, there may be a reason why that is. And I think that's often sodium related where all of a sudden the, the, the pretzels or the potato chips or the, the potatoes you can dip in salt looks like that. That's just what I want. Uh, so my question, I guess, is maybe twofold, like how reliable is that as a gauge for both just the salty stuff, as well as just thirst as a mechanism in general? Because I, I, I believe I heard that thirst can be reliable, but there is also, it, you also have to have a decent protocol in place in order for that mechanism to keep working right. And you also maybe can't trust it to the same degree as you get into these later stages of these really long races, like ultra marathons or Ironman triathlon. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So starting with that point around is thirst reliable, like thirst will keep you alive for sure. Most of the time, you know, there's, there's very few people that would die of dehydration with a, with a bottle of water sat in front of them. You know, the urge to drink that it's, it is so primordial. It's like you will, you will, I, I remember getting really dehydrated on a on a long run years ago. And, you know, like I I this was before smartphones and maps, and I was just lost and in the middle of nowhere. And I found a pub that was open and went in there, I had no money or anything, but I just like demanded water because yeah. and, and if the guy behind the bar hadn't given me water, I'd have fought him for it. You know, <laughs> I was like so dehydrated. Um, so I think thirst is is really good. And you do find athletes maybe some of them are just more experienced maybe some of them are just better at it maybe some of them are the people who don't sweat as much or whatever but there are people who will adequately run even the longest hottest races listening to their body drinking when they feel like it and everything is is great i just don't think that applies to everyone all of the time and i would always encourage people the longer and hotter the event the kind of more structured a plan you want to go into it with especially for the early stages because we all know what we feel like we you know if you've run if you ever run 50 or 100 miles you know that you're not going to feel like eating in the first 30 40 minutes or 60 minutes but you do need to because you know that that massive calorie deficit is going to come later on you know mm -hmm. it's the same with the hydration side of things you you have to take a relatively proactive approach and get in front of it that doesn't just mean like drinking to a set rhythm that never changes but it does mean knowing that roughly, okay, I'm going to need one or two bottles an hour or whatever it is based on past experience. And if I have to force myself to drink that early on, that's what I need to do because it's going to pay dividends later. To your point about, you know, salt craving and that kind of thing, I would say that is absolutely a, you know, again, that's hardwired into us because salt, sodium is essential for life. You can't manufacture it in the body, so you have to ingest it. 
And if you crave salt strongly, especially in the latter stages of a long event, the chances are that your blood sodium levels or your salt levels are dropping. And that's the body's way of saying to you, yeah, go for the pretzels, not the not the candies, because that's what your body wants right now. That salt is going to make it, it's going to make a difference. I think we all should listen to that. But my argument would also be if you've got a proactive plan and you've done a good job managing your electrolyte intake to that point, you probably shouldn't be. It's a bit like waiting until your car starts misfiring to realize it's out of petrol. You know, it's like look at the gauge, you know, and and, and try and get in front of that that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always interesting, I think, because and this is where I think a lot, especially when you see the the disagreement on things like this is it just ends up being a lot of talking past one another in the sense of one person's referring to like what you need to just go about existing versus what you need to perform well at a hundred mile race or any endurance event for that matter. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's a huge reason for the, yeah, the kind of like horrid arguing you see. And I, I, in the end, you know, after a few years into the business, we were, we would post a lot on Facebook, on Twitter, that sort of thing. And you, you would just attract like the most aggressive people trying to like take down your theories on stuff. And because it, because they felt that they could prove that there was a scenario where it, it was not correct, you know, and, and my, my take on it is always try to be a little bit more nuanced and saying, look, there, there are definitely people who don't need to worry about this so much when they're racing they they're efficient they don't sweat a lot they don't lose a lot of salt and their their current habits probably meet their needs if you go to the other extreme there are definitely people like me who would who were screwing this up because their physiology is more extreme and they needed a way more aggressive and proactive approach and then the majority of people sit somewhere between those two extremes and like it's not a very it's not a very clear-cut and easy soundbiteable answer but that's sort of like you know, you've got to figure out what works for you and you've got to follow a plan that that that, that is sensitive to your physiology and the demands of the event is is not it's not easy to communicate. And then people love to tell stories about what worked for them and people love an extreme position. I mean, you'll know that because I know that you you um you know all too the, well. Yeah. <laughs> carbohydrate, carbohydrate debate, the carbohydrate world is like full of that kind of chat. Yeah. Uh, you're kind of in one camp or the other. And and I've always tried to be somewhere in between. Now I get painted sometimes as someone who's on the pro electrolyte end because obviously we make electrolyte supplements, we sell them, I need them myself. But people that get to know me a bit better probably realize that I'm as I'm as equally happy to recommend that someone just doesn't take this stuff or doesn't, if they don't need it, because I think it's horses for courses. I just think that's a difficult, that's a difficult message for some reason to sell to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get, you get a bunch of very opinionated people. You also get, um, there's there's a whole world of people at the moment who you know they've had electrolytes and sports drinks rammed down their throats for years by big food companies and it seems quite quite cool to sort of like take all that down and say ah yeah all that we've been told for years is a is a, is a load of rubbish you know it's all lies it's just to sell drinks it's just this and that's because it's been over leveraged and oversold but it doesn't but for me that doesn't mean you kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater it's there's 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 something in this for definite and it applies to a lot of people the more the more extreme your events the longer and hotter things get the more you need to understand this because i was out of western states a couple of weeks ago and you see people like getting this wrong still you know Mm -hmm. 
sometimes it's because they're dogmatic about their beliefs. It's because someone has told them, yeah, you don't need to take salt. We used to think you need to take loads of salt. You don't now. They cut it out and then they have a terrible race. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot more about the nuance. Yeah, for sure. It's it's definitely, I think the the moral of the story there is like, don't ex don't necessarily expect someone else's anecdote to apply to you or don't expect someone's anecdote to be anything remotely close to population level averages, which is probably a better starting point for most people. And then if you find yourself in a situation like you, where you're far to one side, you make those individual adjustments, but recognize that like, had you taken the no salt approach, that would have put you so much further from the target that you needed to get to versus starting out at the averages and then working your way to the fringe versus starting at one other fringe and then finding out uh, you're on the on the way other on the other side of one, and it just at the end of the day, it becomes it like you said, it's a lot more than uh, salt good, salt salt bad, or carbs good, carbs bad, and you know, like no salt, all salts. <laughs> there's yeah. there's the individual side of it, and actually that's what's led me to a lot of your information in the first place too, because I think like a lot of the stuff that you're putting out there on the education side is that multiple step approach, which like you said is the right way to go, but it's also very tough to market because there's no like six, seven word slogan that you can just pop off and get everyone like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's intuitive to me. Boom, I'm going to go with this, right? It's like, first you have to explain to, to people like the variance, then you have to explain why someone would fall in a certain area and then where the pitfalls there. And then ultimately at, on like the third lesson, get them to the answer they're looking for. And it's just really hard to make that palatable in a, in a quick, quick soundbite. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we, cause we all, I included love quick fixes for stuff. You know, it's like the only quick fix I've found in running in the last few years, which a lot of people will have found is that I put on a pair of like vapor fly or alpha fly <laughs> shoes and I went a little bit quicker, you know, over five thousand that, 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 but again, that's like a real rarity because normally gadgets, gizmos and stuff is like so oversold mm -hmm. people are naturally skeptical. We want to believe that it will help. But I think, I think you know, this one for ultra runners is just one where if you can shut out the noise and not and not get involved in the in the sort of dogmatic arguments for and against taking salt, for and against having a hydration plan. And if you can just be methodical, because the good thing about ultra running is, you know, people do a lot of training. They get a lot of time, a lot of opportunities to practice nutrition, fueling, hydration. If you just are diligent in recording how much you drink, how much electrolyte you take, how you feel, what your body weight does, all those kind of things. You know, we, we often keep training diaries and note down tons of other metrics. Loads of people are writing down their HRV now and their, you know, these kind of things. Like write down how much you drink, how much electrolyte you take, what your body weight does and how you feel. You will see patterns. And then to your point, start somewhere. If you're not sure, start somewhere in the middle, you know, with, with your electrolyte. Uh, and fluid intake and kind of work outwards you know bloated stomach feeling like you're peeing all the time and that kind of thing you're probably drinking too much you know still feeling thirsty getting cramps whatever you know you, you may not be drinking enough nudge it upwards it's kind of not very sexy and it is a little bit laborious but ultimately it's what the better athletes do i think and they iterate it's like an evolutionary process they iterate their way to a system that works for them of course the thing with hydration as opposed to fueling fueling i think you can do the same approach within reason but once you've kind of got that nailed it, it really is fairly static you know it kind of works for you 
the, the confounding thing about hydration is temperature and sweat rate and stuff has such a huge effect that you can nail this for a race in Alaska, but it isn't going to help you for a race in Florida. So you've got it. You've got to also be sensitive to the fact that you've got to build up a, a wealth of experience in different environmental conditions if you really want to be a pro at this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's a perfect uh, that's a perfect thing to focus on a little bit for the ultra runners listening today is that when you start a race and finish a race, you are likely going to go through the full range of temperatures for that day. So if you look at the average temperature range in the environment that you're going to be racing in, you're going to probably go through the full the full spectrum of that. So you probably are better, like you mentioned earlier, knowing kind of like have that like one, two or whatever range like in mind of this is what I'm going to need in the hotter spots. This is what I'm going to need in the cooler spots and be able to sort of like fluctuate between those as the day kind of unfolds and the temperatures present themselves. Yeah, we, we had exactly that. We were working with a handful of athletes at Western States and we, we, we boiled it down to essentially like how many bottles do you need in those first two, three hours when you are literally running through the snow and it's really quite cold and you've got a jacket on or a long sleeve on. And, and then what's that going to escalate to in the middle part of the day when it starts to get hot? And if you're out there a long time, what does that then drop off to when you hit nighttime again? And you've got to, you know, you go through that rhythm with it. And, and I like to talk to people about those recommendations being sort of like guardrails to stay roughly within. They're not an exact number, but you need to keep a mental ledger at all times. And if your guardrail for the first three hours at Western States was one bottle per hour, but you actually only managed one bottle in the first three hours, then you know that your low side of that, and you've probably got it up it because you might get through that three hours fine, but you're probably on the back foot a little bit at that point. If on the other hand, you already cycled through four bottles during that when you were predicting three, that might be okay because you might have just worked harder. It might've been warmer than you thought. But if your performance starts to suffer a bit, the, the thing to do there is not to chuck in an extra two bottles. You're not behind on that area. But without having those guardrails, like I raced a, a big triathlon in 2003 World Long Distance Championships. It was hot. And I had no, I had a lower guardrail for drinking, you know, how much I thought I needed, but no upper limit. And so, so as my performance deteriorated, I just threw more fluid at it, which just, which just compounded the problem that I was having because I hadn't really figured out at that point that there was more is not always better, even if you're a big sweater. So yeah, just thinking in terms of like guardrails and, and those kind of scenarios that you've seen before like oh when i raced here and it was similar conditions this is what i did and that worked out well you know that that is a good that is a good blueprint for you to then follow and then keep that mental ledger as the race goes on as a support crew what we were doing for the athlete we were working with there is we're literally like they're throwing their bottles down at the aid station we're taking them seeing how much we're writing it all down because we want to we want to be able to advise them later on do you know what you've been giving us half full bottles back all the time. You need to start drinking them all. And because again, to your point late on in a, you mentioned earlier, you know, later on in a race, your psychology is pretty messed up. You know, you're tired, you're not making great decisions. Your homeostasis is out of whack. That's where in an ultra distance race, I think having a plan that the crew understands what you were trying to do and they're able to observe. Cause I've seen crews force feed fluids into people who have clearly drunk enough and don't need more maybe they're low on energy or they just need to slow down but so because typically i am like generalizing here but often crews will be all about getting more down an individual rather than less and that's okay if that person has a tendency to 
under-consume. But if they've over-consumed already, forcing more down them is only going to make the problem worse. But if you don't know what they've had, you're operating in the dark. So I think there's a lot of, you know, crew athlete dynamics there and having a plan and, and kind of updating the plan on the fly are all really useful techniques if you're doing super long races. Mm-hmm. No, that's spot on. And I think it's like when you were, we can expect a little bit of, of range. It doesn't have to be like super precise, but if you have, if you're going in with a decision making with no information, it's hard to even be in it. You could miss an entire range and like you said, so if you're actually collecting that data as the crew along the way, you're just going to have a lot more accurate decision making versus you know the risk reward of just guessing at it and assuming, okay, well, this symptom is presenting, therefore let's throw more at it or something like that. So I think that's a really, really valuable piece to, to let the listeners know about. And you're sort of alluding to this to some degree, and I'm curious about this too, is is there like, what, what's the upper limit of fluid intake that someone can expect to be able to get away with? Is that something that's genetic? Is that something that is going to be environmental based? Can you train it and adapt it? Like, is there a ceiling where someone should just say, it doesn't matter how hot it is. I best not exceed this because I'm just not even going to process it. My body's not going to use it the way it would, or what are we looking at for that? Yeah, if you if you read the literature around that, a lot a lot gets thrown around about being about sort of one liter or 32, 34 ounces per hour being something of an upper limit of what the human gut can comfortably absorb on an hourly basis. As as you tend to find with lots of physiological parameters that apply to elite athletes or even just experienced amateur athletes, those ranges, people can often exceed those ranges quite a bit. So we tend to say to people, look, a litre an hour is a lot to drink, especially when you're running. But have we, we've got case studies on our website where we clearly document athletes drinking one and a half litres an hour in very hot events or people that have heavy sweat rates. In other sports where you've got really big human beings, I've seen a tennis player who was an ATP ranked tennis player, Wimbledon finalist, very, very big guy, very heavy sweat rate, um, two to two and a half litres per hour on a hot tennis court he could he could drink and seemingly tolerate and actually needed it when he was trying to compete so that's very rare and and often with runners if i see people trying to drink more than one and a half liters so what's that that's like 32 sort of 50 something ounces an hour that's almost a bit like okay well they've got to really need that in order to be able to to process it i think some of it is genetic I actually do think there's a bit of a link between sweat rate and absorption ability because I think the body is clever. You know, like I can drink quite a bit per hour. I have a high sweat rate. I've seen that with small, small guys who are riding in the Tour de France or riding pro tour cycling. They often have pretty, pretty, pretty just sweat rates, but some of them can drink three standard water bottles an hour. And those water bottles are usually 16 ounces. So that's like, you know, uh, 48, 48, 50 ounces an hour. Um, not all the time, but obviously during the peak sort of long, hot climbs in the Pyrenees or the Alps or whatever. Um, and there, and so I think if you're a big sweater, maybe the body compensates a little bit by upregulating fluid intake because clearly the body wants to survive. Um, I think you can probably train it a little bit. I don't think you necessarily get, need to go out of your way to train it, but I think what you can do is I think 
by drinking more more frequently in training and helping to balance out your losses you probably naturally the body is usually adaptable to a degree at getting better at something but i i can't say for sure but i'd be hesitant to say that you could say double your fluid intake or whatever you know it's like you have to kind of figure out what's comfortable mm-hmm. one thing i would say this is probably less slightly less applicable to pure ultra runners than runners in general but runners seem to either psychologically or physically not drink as aggressively as cyclists and triathletes do and i think part of that's cultural because i think you know you if you if you've ever cycled even as a youngster your training sessions are often going to exceed 90 minutes two hours three hours the kind of duration when you need to drink whereas runners many runners even marathon runners can go through the majority of their career with only needing one session a week where they actually need to drink during the session so it's kind of an alien concept to them and we all know as well that running drinking when running especially if you're running reasonably quickly is quite uncomfortable and if you're breathing hard it's difficult so i kind of feel like runners maybe not ultra runners as much but runners in general just also need to try a bit harder with their drinking some of the time because they're not it's not as culturally embedded in the sport to drink when you're training Mm-hmm. Yeah, the triathlon community tends to be a little more calculated across the board, I would say. <laughs> yeah. For better or worse. Uh, yeah, yeah, for better or worse, for sure. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about, and I find this really an interesting component within just the, the, the topic of hydration and dehydration, how it relates to performance and performance dips, is when you look at the literature, it seems to be consistently repeated that when you start dipping to around two to 3% fluid losses, where you start to see that more obvious drop in performance, but, and perhaps this is just random anecdotes as well, but you always have the story of some random athlete just crushing a race with well past that two to 3%. I think the famous one is like Geber Lassie losing like almost 10% of his body weight over the course of a marathon and negative splitting his way into the finish line or something like that. And I was looking into that a bit. And one, one explanation I heard for it, I would love to hear your take on this is that a lot of the research on dehydration is set up in a protocol where one, they're in a lab and then two, they are dehydrating the participant before they start the actual training session to get them to that that level of two to three percent or lower whereas when you have a situation where an athlete's all at say a marathon course we can assume they're starting that hydrated or optimally hydrated and they're kind of going through the process of dropping that water weight while their body's already kind of i guess physiologically like tuned into the intensity that they're running for and you have these things taking place like uh, glycogen breaking down and releasing the hydrogen portion of that, which is a hydrating recycling process that the body can do and things like that. So what, what is it, what is a person supposed to do with that information? I guess. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're, you're definitely right that if you poll a group of sports scientists and nutritionists about how much dehydration can you tolerate, most people will throw a number of about two or 3% out at you as a, a generalization. And and I don't think that's necessarily too far off the mark in terms of, from a practical point of view, if you went through that exercise that I, I talked about earlier and you're going for a training run, weighing yourself before and after, drinking as you normally do, I'd always be saying to people, if you're losing more than about 3%, then you probably want to work on your drinking in that session to get it up. Because 
even if you're performing okay at the end, you're going to take longer to recover because part of recovery is restoration of homeostasis. You know, to recover from four or five percent dehydration can take a couple of days. So you want to be keeping it in that zone. That being said, you know, the the specific example you use of Gabriel Selassie, I think he was losing yeah, like eight or nine percent of his body weight in a in a marathon. But I think what is interesting about that is a yes, your body's going to respond differently to passive dehydration caused by diuretics or sweating pre-exercise than it is towards a gradual process of dehydration that goes on because you are your body is going to adapt as it goes along because preserving blood volume is the main thing you need for cardiovascular effort so your body can clearly shift fluid from the intracellular compartment to the extracellular space to keep your blood volume up while you're exercising i suspect that's slightly different to how it operates if you just sit in a sauna get to three percent dehydrated and then start running a marathon those two things are not apples and apples really so i think that's where some of the discrepancy comes in the other huge discrepancy which doesn't get talked about as much but you touched on it is that i i would be willing to bet that gabby Selassie starts stood on the start line of that marathon like a little bit heavier than he does on a normal day because he's going to be fully glycogen loaded and every molecule of glycogen that he's he's got on board, let's say he's carrying an extra 700 grams of, of glycogen, that's going to have three molecule, you know, three grams of water with it. So that's like a couple of liters or at least, at least a liter and a half of extra fluid held in the body. Now, when you exercise, that glycogen gets broken down, the water gets released. Whether that becomes bio fully bioavailable is a bit of a subject of debate. Some researchers seem to argue that it is. Some argue that not all of it is. And some argue that most of it's not. But it does get released. And that, coupled with the burning of the fuel and the, the high levels of sweating that you get anyway, mean that I would bet that him dropping... 8% body weight is not the same as him dropping 8% body weight from a normal weight. He's starting artificially high almost. And so it might be more like four or 5% on a normal day. And, and we know that we, we know that elite athletes tend to be kind of outliers in many respects. I'm sure there are elite athletes that can tolerate dehydration better than some of the less well-trained individuals. So that's why there's a bit of vagueness about that number. But I still think it's a useful exercise for people to go through to to monitor their personal percentage body weight loss, because somewhere in that three, four, five, six percent range is probably going to be applicable to 99 percent of people. that You've got to stay within that if you want to if you want to perform well and optimally recover. Mm -hmm. Hey, folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors include Element T electrolytes and Delta G ketone esters. LMNT electrolytes can be found at drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and are offering a free sample pack with your first purchase. And Delta G ketones can be found at deltagketones.com. Also, give them a follow at deltag.ketones on Instagram. It is really interesting when you run those numbers and come to that conclusion where it's like you're talking about a liter to liter and a half of essentially recyclable hydration that isn't necessarily accounted for. And when you just look at that particular situation, it's like, yeah, if it's, if he's overweight, quote unquote, you know, he's, he's sort of like has that mobile aid station with him from a hydration standpoint. And then when you're looking at a guy who's running a low two hour marathon, a liter and a half of fluid, you know, even with those upper limits that we discussed prior, like he's looking at a solid hour worth there. So uh, it, it starts to make a little more sense. I think when you unpack it the way that you did. 
yeah and i think you know i believe i might be wrong but thinking back to those papers i think they're quoting his sweat rate at like three three and a half liters an hour or something like that which sounds plausible like it's that's very high but but the, his metabolic rate is off the charts as well because the guy's running at 440 something or 450 yeah. a mile so <laughs> it's it's going to be really high he's going to be producing a lot of heat and then like you say if he's if he's freeing up a liter and a half of water by burning glycogen that is going to carry him a good way into the race he's also drinking a good bit because he's taking in most of his carbohydrate calories through a liquid format because he's running mm. so fast so yeah you kind of can imagine that he's going to finish with his body weight down from where he started but not necessarily in physiological crisis i also mm. think it's different when it happens fast and acutely like that than it does if you gradually dehydrate over eight or ten hours i think there's a difference between rapid dehydration that might occur with a very high sweat rate but a very high output over two hours versus the same level of dehydration creeping up on creeping up on you nine or ten hours into a long ultra um, especially because I think you've got more chance of suffering electrolyte imbalance in that nine, 10 hour period, because if you're under doing the electrolytes and, and diluting the body, you could create, you could certainly create an argument. I think that the, the imbalance of electrolytes is probably more likely to be problematic than the sheer drop in fluid volume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, Another thing I wanted to ask you about with uh, with this whole conversation, I think this is something that in this this conversation may have just evolved to the point where now I think it seems pretty established. But I'm sure you've gotten pushback on this in the past, which is how how is this all manipulated ma manipulated? Because I think intuitively someone might think, well, if I you know go out to eat and just have like two x or maybe three x my normal sodium intake for the day like i think they just assume well the next day i'm going to go out for a workout i'm going to sweat and i'm going to lose more sodium or more electrolytes in my sweat so my in order to account for that extra load you just took on the extra the the previous day but i believe it's been shown now that that's not necessarily the case and it's basically just a genetic a genetically determined where uh, you you can't kind of hack the system so to speak and like for someone like myself i couldn't find myself in a position where all of a sudden i'm losing the 1800 milligrams per liter that you are yeah your, your sweat sodium loss appears to have a, a very strong genetic component to it so when i repeat sweat test myself and i've done that now over a period of nearly 15 years on a very regular basis i've done it in different environmental conditions different states of fitness i'm obviously 15 years older than when i started testing and my sweat sodium never varies more than about you know 50 to 100 milligrams a litre it's always one side or the other of 1800 milligrams a litre um, we've we've got repeat tests on lots of other athletes not quite as frequent as me but loads of repeat tests and people's sweat sodium just seems to be very stable even like pre and post training camps and you know so you can go so I'll, I'll typically come to the US in February each year for baseball spring training I'll work a few a couple of weeks in Phoenix in Arizona I'll work a week or so maybe two in Florida and training every day in those conditions i'll test my sweat when i come home it's pretty similar you know even with the acclimatization effect and i think a lot of that is because the the way your body regulates sodium levels in the body is not through sweating sweating is like a an output to do with thermoregulation it's not a primary mechanism for controlling electrolyte levels your kidneys do all of that 
And so your kidneys kick out. If you eat a really salty meal within minutes or hours, if you measure your urine, you'll see a big spike in sodium loss because your body just dumps that extra sodium. Um, if, if you, on the other hand, sodium restrict for a number of days, it might take a few hours or a couple of days, but you'll see drastically reduced levels of sodium in your urine. And there were some really interesting papers written on this in the 1930s when they didn't need such they didn't have such a liberal approach to um, the kind of ethics approval for for studies. And they they actually put people in a house, deprived them of sodium completely for a week or more, took loads of blood measurements, urine measurements. And they showed that for the first few days, you know, you stop eating salt, you stop peeing salt almost immediately, but you keep sweating salt for quite a few days eventually when your salt level when the sodium levels in the body drop to a critical level your sweat sodium will reduce but by this point these people are nearly bedridden mm. and they're in a bad state so it's not the kind of thing you so if an athlete says to me if i eat a low salt diet train in the heat you know da, 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 can i reduce my sweat sodium the kind of off the cuff answer is like yeah you can probably a bit but what are you going to gain and you're probably going to lose a load of performance and fitness and blood volume and other good stuff so you kind of in my view better off working with what you've got matching your needs a bit more closely rather than trying to hack it somehow and try to become more efficient yeah no that makes sense it's really interesting too because then when you when you do look at just because we we were kind of i guess using electrolytes and sodium a little interchangeably here in this conversation but in reality you know you have sodium potassium and magnesium as kind of the main ones there and I guess my, my next question then is we have that range, well, we have that intrapersonal range with sodium. We also have that being kind of the leader in the clubhouse, so to speak, that it is going to be the one that you, your body's going to lose the most of versus the other electrolytes like potassium and magnesium, where they're part of the question, but they're also much lower in terms of what we would see in, in sweat loss. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how people should maybe think about those other electrolytes like potassium and magnesium when it comes into this yeah the reason we talk about sodium so much with athletes is because you're we're talking about sodium that's lost in your sweat and your sweat's drawn from your blood plasma and your blood plasma is part of your extracellular fluid volume so the fluid that sits outside of your body's cells and the predominant electrolyte in that fluid is sodium so that's why your sweat exhibits so much sodium because the pool from which it's drawn is very salty um, you, your body does reclaim some of that sodium at the sweat gland and the difference in that level of reclamation is ultimately really what drives the difference between say your sweat sodium and mine your sweat glands are very efficient at get, getting some sodium back into the system mine don't want to work as hard or, or aren't as numerous or whatever so that's kind of the difference there whereas potassium is the predominant electrolyte in your intracellular space so sodium sodium controls the level of sodium is very influential in fluid balance in the extracellular compartment and the level of potassium is very influential in the fluid balance of your intracellular compartment so potassium just doesn't leak out in sweat to anywhere near the high levels that it does in sodium so replacing it in during events because of sweat losses and the same goes to magnesium um, magnesium is lost in tiny amounts in sweat magnesium is like really really important in your diet for nerve function and for lots of um, enzymatic reasons lots of cellular communication reasons but you don't lose much of it in your sweat so as long as you're eating a good diet which is you know which is fairly natural which is rich in magnesium 
and potassium, you shouldn't really need to actively supplement those in a, to a large degree when you're sweating during exercise. That's why we always talk about the sodium. There is there is a bit of a question mark for ultra endurance around whether some potassium is is also good. We have a, a low level of potassium, relatively low level of potassium in the supplements we make to balance the sodium because they obviously play off against each other to a degree with one being predominant in intracellular and extracellular fluid. We've certainly seen a couple of cases of athletes in the Hawaii Ironman who've had on the spot blood tests when they've collapsed or not finished the race and been shown to be low in potassium. Hmm. Um, but some, but more often than not, speaking to the physicians who dealt with that situation, oftentimes the, um, the, the sort of feedback we get is that they probably overdrank and it was a washing out effect. So they peed out a lot of potassium rather than sweated it out because um, potassium mm. potassium is always a dangerous one to play around with because it's so intrinsically involved with heart rhythm and and heartbeat um, when you if, if you're ever unlucky enough to have to have a heart operation and the surgeon stops the heart they'll infuse potassium into it to stop the heart beating so arrhythmias and kind of problems with the heart are often associated with either abnormally high or low potassium levels so you, you don't mess with it too much but but oftentimes if we see electrolyte disturbance in athletes in races it's usually sodium levels that are low rather than potassium levels or magnesium levels interesting yeah it's uh it's worth worth uh unpacking that to some degree i think just so people are aware but uh yeah generally speaking it it seems like sodium is the one that the athlete needs to be concerned with at least on competition day um i did want to ask Outside of, you know, going and getting a sweat test done and kind of getting that exact number, is there some signs that you typically see that would suggest somebody is maybe going to be floating to one side or the other of the norm? I think of some that I've just heard over the years where, well, we all see sometimes too, where you'll have a friend or maybe it's you who you're, you're, you're all running out in the hot weather. And for some reason, your shirt is just covered in salt crystals versus your friend who just looks like, yeah, they sweated or they were sweating, but they, they don't have that visible crystal crystallization on like their clothing or their packs and things like that. And I was told that that could be a, a sign that you're probably skewing maybe closer to your type of a loss and from electrolytes versus mine. And then another one that was shared with me was just like, it, once you get there and you're, you're sweating, just like lick your forearm. And if it tastes really salty, you're probably a higher salt concentration loss person versus if it just tastes a little more plain and you're probably a lower electrolyte or salt loss person. Yeah, I would say both of those things. So if you if you do see white salt marks all over your kit, your hat, your clothing, that can be a sign that you're losing more salt than average, whether that's due to a high sweat rate or a high sweat sodium or both is not necessarily clear, but it's certainly a sign that there's more, more deposits often means more salt loss. Yeah. If your salt, if your sweat tastes really salty, that's another red flag. If it, if it drips in your eyes and really stings, then that can be another one. Uh, if you suffer, suffer those kind of transient episodes of low blood pressure, when you stand up after exercising in the heat, that's another red flag. If you just feel often feel like crap when you exercise in the heat compared with in cooler conditions so if you're like me one of those kind of people that feels like heat really limits your performance that can be another sign muscle cramping in the heat controversial for some people but we see a lot of that associated with excess sweat and sodium loss so i think all of those things if you if you kind of listen to that and go right i tick four out of five of those boxes or however many they were 
there that's often a really good sign that yeah you are losing more salt than the average person and the simple remedy then is or the simple test to see if that's the case is to increase your salt intake before and during exercise to see if that helps interesting yeah yeah it's always uh it's always fun to kind of look at like in hindsight to some degree like where were the signs that were there before and and how do they kind of tell the story that the the actual test ends up telling you and and sometimes you look at it and think, oh, I should have been maybe a little more aware of that if I would have been paying a little closer attention. <laughs> yeah, well, it was when, when I started my journey of looking into this, it was in the very early 2000s and, and there wasn't, the internet was obviously a lot more simple then. And the place that I found the most useful information, I was a triathlete at the time, but it was on ultra running forums because there were all these mm. people that were speculating and sharing stories about Western states, how much salt they were taking and, yeah. There was all this debate and I, I got really interested because there were a few people on there that were clearly saying, well, wow, you you get away with taking this. But I I've done this like race six times. And if I don't take X amount, then I end up in a ditch or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And I was thinking like, yeah, I can see myself in some of these people. And that was another part of the thing that led me to experimenting with all of this. It was kind of that social proof for me that I was onto something and that I wasn't the only one. Um, so it's. I think that even if you can't get a sweat test or don't want to spend the money to get a sweat test, like thinking about all of this, we've got a, bl- a blog on our website about this kind of six signs that you're a salty sweater, um, which is a good recap of what we've talked about. We can, I can share that with you to stick in the notes for the podcast. If people want to read that and see if it, it jibes with, with their experiences. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll definitely throw that in the show notes. So listeners can go over there and see if they've been exhibiting some of these signs or if they're just, generally curious about uh about that information i do want to ask before i let you go andy if someone is like hey i'd love to get that test done is that something that is pretty widely available at this point in time i know i may have just been fortunate that remo happens to be in austin but how expansive is that network at this point yeah that network is um fairly expansive now certainly in the us and it's growing fast um i would say visit the website um, precisionhydration.com have a look in the footer to find a test center but if you can't locate one on the map that looks like it's close to you don't don't sort of give up hope because we are i mean i think we've in, we've installed sweat testing equipment in the us in three different locations in the last 3 weeks so that's wow. growing pretty fast um and just send shoot us an email the team are always on there at hello at precisionfuelandhydration.com you can sort of shoot us a a question like and tell us where you're based and we can help to link you up with the center if people are happen to be down the road from you in austin yeah remo is a fantastic resource he's an ultra runner himself very prolific sort of 100 200 mile runner and really knowledgeable on this subject he also travels up to kind of arizona and flagstaff way a bit and offers testing up there but but kind of coast to coast in the us now we've got we've got i'm going to say something like 50 or 60 sweat test sites so it's 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 a reasonable number and if you're a runner who's who's going to a race or something we quite often like remo will take his sweat testing machine to races that he goes to. yeah so like, get, get in touch with us and we'll, we'll help link you up if you're keen to get one yeah i was going to add that it's just it's so interesting how portable those it's basically just a briefcase he just he just came into my into our living room and had his little briefcase and set it up and it was super quick too i think like i mean we were chatting for a while but I mean, it, he could have been in and out in probably 15, 20 minutes if it had been a rush. So like, I do yeah. see a lot of application for something like this, where you set up shop at like a race expo or a place where you're going to just congest a lot of runners. And, and like you said, I know Remo, he heads up to different areas too. So if you do 
find that there's one near you probably doesn't hurt to reach out to them, ask them where they travel to with it. If they, they may end up coming near you anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we, you know, apart from that, if people are listening to this and they've got questions about what we've talked about and they want to speak to someone, you know, we have a team of sports scientists, some in the UK, but also some in the US now, uh, one in Australia, you can book a video call for free for 20 minutes, like pick the brains, talk about that. It's not a sales pitch on our products or our methods or anything like that. It You, you can come and like bring your experiences, bring your questions about your race, fueling and hydration. And we're, we're set up to help you with that because I, I kind of feel quite strongly that as a young athlete, as a novice athlete, and even as a moderately experienced athlete, I didn't really know where to turn to get help with this sort of thing. It, and it and it kind of hasn't changed much over the years although there's more knowledge out there if you just go online and read stuff or watch youtube videos you can you can confuse the hell out of yourself because of all these polarized opinions and and i think what one of the biggest services that we try to offer as a company is to cut through some of that noise and listen to your individual story and try and give you some some pretty solid advice based on what you're you're trying to do we can't claim that we can unpick every scenario with everyone and we're not medics or anything so we can't advise on on stuff that's really really sort of you know medically orientated but if you have questions about fueling and hydration we we'd love to hear from people awesome andy well thanks a bunch for taking some time out of your day to come on and share all this with us i know it's been a, a topic that i've talked about on the podcast in the past and you know, it's always great to have someone like yourself who can dig into the details a little deeper than I can on a solo episode. So I'm grateful for that. But if you want to, I know you mentioned some stuff prior, but if you want to let the listeners know where they can find you, feel free to let that know. And I'll definitely put that stuff in the show notes. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, precisionhydration.com or precisionfuelandhydration.com either work are a good place to, to start your journey looking at what we do. We've got the knowledge hub on the website. I'll send you some links to articles that might might resonate based on our conversation and then yeah just reach out to us and get in touch we're a very small but approachable company so if anyone's got questions we'd love to hear from you awesome thanks again andy thanks mate thanks for tuning into this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with zach bitter Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.